0: Hello, you lovely people. I'm Sam, she's Paige. (laughs) Hey, What's up? And with the power of dumbassery, we are M cubed. Or M3, murder, mystery, and mayhem. With our squirrely, chaotic energy, we love to do research on cases that make you laugh, cry, and of course, make you go full T-Rex. You know, the level of uncomfortable that makes your arms retract and head attempt to be one with your shoulders. And obviously, the only vocalization is, Ra
1: <laughs> <laughs> Find us on all the major podcast
0: platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us in our dumbassery every
1: Thursday! Seriously, come join us. Hi guys, welcome back. This is episode 52 of True Crime b and I'm Bailey. I'm Beth. And today you're the bad guy. I am sure the bad guy. Yeah, it's a really sad one today. I have a really amazing survivor story, so we are Thank still going to leave you on a note.
0: Okay. Thanks, Scott Kitty, for that. Thanks, Scott Kitty. I will give a trigger warning because this does involve children. Okay. So for anybody, skip to mom's part. Maybe I'll put a timestamp when I'm editing so that we can. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about Marianne Colby. Have you heard that name before? I don't know yet. Marianne Colby and her husband Robert Colby, both 27 years old at the time, moved to Cleveland, Ohio in 1952. Robert worked as a space engineer while Marianne was a stay-at-home housewife slash mom later on Mm -hmm. and would take care of the house, essentially. While her husband was at work, somehow Marianne met a single man named John Young who lived nearby, sounds like down the street, he lived near them. And she just became obsessed with him. Uh Uh-oh. And at first it seemed like he just thought she was being friendly and he'd answer her calls or say hi to her at the grocery store, stuff like that, but then she started following and quite literally stalking the hell out of him. Yikes. And it was so obvious her husband, Robert Colby, knew this was going on and just was too scared to say anything to her about it because he didn't want to fight with her about it. That seems
1: unhealthy. Yes. Yes. So
0: as this became more and more obsessive, John decided he was not at all interested in Marianne and told her to back off himself multiple times. And then it came to a head when finally he decided to go on a date with another woman because, you know, Marianne is married. Why the fuck would he want to go out with her anyway?
1: Yeah, and well, I mean, if he didn't want to be attached to somebody, that's why people have affairs with married people because they're looking for someone who's not trying to get a commitment out of them. That's true. But clearly he's not that guy. Yes, and he told her multiple
0: times he was not into it. So he went on a date with another woman, and Marianne followed him to the date, ended up ruining it, and then they had to leave, and that didn't work out for John.
1: Marianne, you're embarrassing everyone. Stop it. I know, and she's just humiliated for her. (laughs) Oh, my God.
0: Finally, after that, John had had enough, and he contacted Robert Colby himself, and that conversation must have been so awkward, just... Hey, man, your wife scares me. You need to tell her to leave me alone. I don't want to sleep with her. I'm not into it. And Robert's like,
1: yeah, she scares me too. Yeah, tell me about it, man. I live with her. Oh, man. Mr. Colby,
0: like I said, he was already aware of this, but he did have the uncomfortable conversation with his wife, and they came to a conclusion that, okay, yes, I've been acting wrongly, and now I realize if he's coming to you about this, he really does not want to be with me, and they kind of just stopped communication with John altogether. Okay. So the Colbys moved on, whatever, stopped talking to John after that. Six years later, in 1958, the Colbys and John Young were reunited when John, who by now had married his own wife, Nancy, and they had a son named John Creamer Young. They move into a new house on Warrington Road in Shaker Heights, Cleveland, and unfortunately after he bought the house, moved in, they'd been there for a couple of days, he realized the Colbys lived two doors down now.
1: Oh, no. <laughs>
0: I know. Can you imagine his reaction? Just like, fucking goddamn it! (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. (laughs) But he explained the situation to his wife, Nancy, who he hadn't known at the time that all the stalking had gone on, and just kind of said, be wary of those people. Just so you know, it was a long time ago, but they're weird. (laughs)
1: Don't be friendly with them.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, the Youngs now had a young son, and the Colbys had a young son, and those kids didn't know all the drama between their parents and became neighborhood best friends. Oh, jeez. And so they were kind of forced to interact with each other, despite all the background of everything. As the boys grew older, Nancy Young started noticing she didn't really like the Colby's son. His name was Dane. Okay. She didn't like Dane because Dane was kind of aggressive, and she said he was a bully and showing her son, Creamer, all of these different things that she didn't like. He was copying the weird, aggressive
1: things that their son was doing and bringing it home. And... Things that he was probably learning from his weird mother.
0: Exactly. So, and that's another thing is that Nancy ended up telling them they shouldn't be friends anymore after she witnessed Marianne hitting her kids multiple times as a punishment and even after explaining, hey, I'd like it if you didn't do that to my child, Marianne continued to do it. Oh, she was hitting Nancy the other skin? kid. Yeah, so Nancy's like, okay, you've stalked my husband. Now we have to live next door to each other. You're not going to be bringing this into my family now yeah. and hurting my children when I told you not to do that. So it just kept getting worse and worse and worse, the relationship between these two families. Oh, wow. In 1964, the tension started to bubble up once again after Nancy Young had left the Colbys out of her Christmas party.
1: I can't For, imagine why she would know, them I said, at her Christmas party. know, and I said, enough. <laughs> Seriously. Because, why but, would they even think they were going to be ex- invited to her Christmas party? I know. Good grief.
0: But after finding out they had this Christmas party, Marianne Colby got pissed, called up Nancy, and screamed at her about it, saying, You can't do that to us. Our kids are best friends. This is unfair. You never want to watch my son help babysit him when I'm out of town or whatever. And Nancy kind of smoothed it over and said... You know what, Marianne? We don't have to be friends. Our kids can be friends, but I don't want your son at my house. That's my rule. Putting my foot down. That's it. On August 24th, 1965, so about a year later, at 8.30 a.m., Marianne called over to the Young's house to let them know that she had found a boy's jacket that she didn't believe belonged to her son, Dane. So she figured, well, the only boy that hangs out over here is the Young's son, Creamer. So she calls over and she asked for Nancy initially to tell her to come get it, but Nancy had been sick, so John answered the phone and said, you can just tell it to me. And Marianne said, well, here's the description of the jacket. Do you think that belongs to your boy? And John, after hearing it, said, yeah, that sounds like Creamer's jacket. I just bought him over Christmas, whatever. He said, okay, no problem. I'll send Creamer over two doors down to grab it real fast and then he can bring it back to the house. So John is sending his son to pick up the jacket and that he must have left house. over okay. at the house. Yeah, Creamer, who is eight years old at this point, walks over like he's done a thousand times before to his friend's house to pick up his jacket. And the family did not hear from him for a little bit over an hour. As the morning went on and the parents kind of said, did Creamer come home? Did you see him come home? They both were like, no, I never saw him. So they did what anybody would do and called over to the Colby house and said, Hey, we sent Kramer. Did he get the jacket and come home? Or is he still over there hanging out with your son? And Marianne said, Oh, no. He left hours ago. I don't know. He literally came in, grabbed it, and left. Hmm. Unfortunately, the Youngs did not have to wait much longer to find out what happened to their son because around noon, police were called out to the area of Gates Mills where a man walking his dog had stumbled upon the body of a young boy. And this part, I cried every time I read it. Once they saw an ID tag on his shoes, you know how sometimes you write the name? Yeah, on in the your, old days
1: they used to do. Like if you go to camp or something
0: like that, right? Yeah. So they found one of those ID tags on the shoes that said Creamer the Lion. Aww. And the officers knew right away that this was the person who the Youngs had reported missing just an
1: hour or two well, before how many that. many little kids are named Creamer?
0: Yeah. John Creamer Young Jr. had been shot point blank once in the back of his head so at least hopefully he never
1: had a clue of what happened right didn't even know didn't suffer yeah at the hands of this insane woman poor kid though because what did this kid ever do nothing all he he was like he did nothing despite all the awkward tension between the families this kid was still like
0: i still want to hang out with your son your son's cool i like your son he's my friend by September, everyone was growing suspicious of Marianne Colby, because, of course, she was the last person to have seen him, and her story was also not quite making sense. When confronted by the police, she confessed she broke right away. They brought her in to talk to her, and she said, Okay, fine, you got me. My son, Dane, was messing around with the little handgun we have, and he accidentally... She blamed her kid? Her eight-year-old son. Oh. Yeah, she's just shooting his best friend. How old was Creamer? Creamer and Dane were both eight. Okay. Yeah, so she said, Yeah, he came over to grab the jacket. My son Dane was messing around with our little handgun and accidentally shot Creamer, so I panicked and I went and disposed of him in the next suburb over.
1: That's ridiculous.
0: However, then they asked her, Well, what'd you do with the gun then? We need to see the gun. And she brought them to it, which it was... She had taken three pounds of ground beef wrapped it around the handgun, and then shoved it in the very bottom of her freezer in the basement. Oh, my God. They went, and they got that out, and then obviously they took the gun to do some ballistics tests just to make sure everything's matching up. Once they did that, they found out this gun was it was a 60-year-old gun. So it was from the 1900-something. It was really old. And because of that, to pull the trigger alone, it would take 16 pounds of pressure just to pull on the trigger. Wow. And they said, that is a very deliberate trigger pull. I don't believe that, one, your eight-year-old son would be able to pull 16 pounds, one or two fingers. There's no way. And also, this didn't just go off by accident. Right. They confronted her with that information. She said, okay, okay, Dane had nothing to do with it. He wasn't home. My husband wasn't home. So Creamer came over, grabbed the jacket. As he was grabbing it in my basement... I don't know why she brought the jacket down to the basement when you knew he was on his way over. Just leave it by the front door, you weirdo. But he was down in the basement, grabbing the jacket. I was next to him, and I picked up a pile of laundry.
1: And there was a gun in the laundry, and and it accidentally
0: bumped into my hand. I forgot. I accidentally put the loaded and already cocked weapon underneath the laundry, silly me. And it accidentally went off when I
1: picked it up and walked past him hmm Show me the laundry that has all the bullet holes through it then, lady.
0: Mm-hmm. Also, it didn't explain because they had his body. How did she think that they weren't going to be like, this doesn't seem like something that went through multiple things or bounced around a room or like... He had gunpowder burns on the back of his head, so it was within two inches of his skin when that shot went off. Wow. It did make sense. That's just disgusting. Yeah. They arrested her, obviously. After they had the gun and all of that information... They found the original origin of the gun and where she had gotten it from, and they found that Marianne had traveled back in 1963, so this is after she was living next door and her kid was already friends with their kid. Mm -hmm. In 1963, she met with a dealer in Medina, Ohio, using the alias Nancy Russell to purchase this gun and then brought it back to their home in Cleveland. Hmm. It's funny that she used Nancy. Isn't that strange? During her trial, Marianne Colby's neighbor testified to seeing her leave her home in the family's car a little bit after 8.30 that morning. The day that Creamer was murdered. The day that Creamer was murdered, which again is showing a lot of premeditation because if I have my neighbor's kid over, I accidentally fire off a gun, and even if I'm sick and want to be, oh, I don't want them to know I did this and I want to hide the body, you're going to have a couple hours of panic or like, shit, what do I do? What do I do? What's going to be the best way to get away with this? She literally shot this kid and within like 10 minutes was in her car with his body taking him to the next tower Yeah, because
1: she wasn't panicky because this is exactly what she had planned to do.
0: So that kind of showed some premeditation to the court. Yeah. Yeah, she handled
1: it all very smoothly. Mm-hmm.
0: So this plus the gun purchase two years prior and the suspicious circumstances of his death, including calling over and saying, hey, send your little boy over here. Marianne still pled not guilty by reason of insanity.
1: Really? Sounds like
0: a very sane person to me, just saying,
1: but... Yeah, a little psychotic
0: maybe, but... Yeah, maybe a sociopath or a psychopath, whichever one, I'm not yeah, sure, but... but... Oh, wow. In his closing arguments, her lawyer said, Mrs. Colby has lost her battle not only in the court, but against psychic disintegration. No matter what the court does, Mrs. Colby will be institutionalized for a long, long time. On March 25th, 1966, they came back with their verdict, and they ruled in her favor as not guilty by reason of insanity, and she was sent to the Lima State Hospital for the criminally insane. Okay. However, the prediction that her defense attorney made about she will be institutionalized for a long, long time was not true. Because only four years after she was put into that, in 1972, Marianne Colby was released from Lima and free to go live her life and do whatever she wanted. Oh, wow. And just to follow up, in 1977, so a couple years after she got out, she remarried for a second time to a man named Russell Cordell and lived in Dublin, Ohio until her death in 2007 at 82 years old. Oh, wow. I just thought that was so fucked up. And it's interesting how back then they were like, oh, clearly she's criminally insane. No sane person would do this, but sane people do this all the time she knew exactly what she was doing
1: yeah she was very narcissistic thinking that one there was something wrong with John because he didn't want to have an affair with her
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and then harassing him and stalking him basically making his life hell and then he marries this nice woman and they move into their neighborhood unknowingly and then she makes that woman's life hell too And then this party, apparently, is the thing that she's like, oh, that shit can't stay." They don't want to be friends with me? This is not okay. Something is wrong with these people. I will punish them by taking away their only child. And the part I wanted to kind of ask you about, in the articles I
0: read about it, she had originally, when she called that morning to the young house, she had asked for Nancy, right? Okay, and said, hey, John, is Nancy there? I want to speak to her for a second. And John said, well, Nancy's sick right now. She's in bed. What, what do you need? I can take it. And so she told John, oh, well, I think one of your sons, because they had multiple children at this point. Oh, I thought
1: they only had the one.
0: Well, they had multiple children, but I think Dane was the oldest. Okay. So he's the only one that, makes sense, would leave it there and then come home without his parents, you know? Yeah. But she calls, asks for Nancy, gets John. John says, what do you need? She tells him, oh, your son left my, your, his jacket over here. And then John says, okay, well, I'll send Creamer. But why would she ask for Nancy unless she was kind of hoping Nancy herself would come over and do this? And then when she got Creamer, she was like, well, better than nothing, I guess.
1: Yeah, she might have been planning to kill Nancy. She
0: decided to make their lives miserable in one way or another.
1: Yeah, it's it just, one of those things where she chooses to see herself as them doing something bad to her when she's been the bad one, mm-hmm. the wrong one, the victimizer. The entire time they've, that she's known any of these people, Yeah, she has been just a freaking nightmare to them. Yeah. So whoever came down there, she just wanted to hurt one of them.
0: And it's just scary. It's scary. Cause in the fact that she, I wanted to say served four years, but she didn't even serve four years. She was in a state hospital, which... Given, in the late 60s, was probably not a super pleasant experience,
1: but... She was probably just medicated the whole time, she probably didn't even remember being in there when she got out.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, they they just drugged him up so bad, they would just sit around in practically catatonic states.
0: And then she just gets to go out and remarry and live a grand life in Dublin... Which, if you're not from central Ohio area, Dublin's a pretty nice neighborhood. Well, Shaker like, Heights
1: and Gates Mills are also very, be a very nice. very upscale neighborhoods. Yeah, in they're very upscale neighborhoods in the Cleveland area. And then Dublin is pretty much one of the top two or three areas in the Columbus, Ohio area. I mean, so, she had a good... She had a husband who was so devoted to her at this point. And she was put up with so much of her shit. Going
0: behind his back to his other man. Like, in... There was one point where they had all attended a dinner party together and she made sexual advances at the dinner table with her husband right there and Nancy right there. And her husband was still like, oh, that was embarrassing. Please stop doing that. That's like, like this man was so devoted to you. He's a space engineer. You know, he makes good money. Smart. You've got a child with him. You have everything anybody could ever want. And you still go out and murder an innocent child because you're so narcissistic.
1: What a terrible woman. What a terrible woman.
0: I'm not a big nonfiction book reader, but if you are and you're interested in the history of U.S. law, especially in the insanity defense, there's a very popular book about this case called The Insanity Defense and the Mad Murderess of Shaker Heights by William L. Tabak, and everybody says it's really good. Okay. So check it out if you want to. I know a lot of people in true crime like to read that kind of stuff.
1: So. Oh yeah, a lot of people devour books like that. I just can't stay focused on one case for long enough. You know. <laughs> Do you know how long ago that book was written? Was it a modern book or was it from that time period?
0: It was from, I believe, 1996.
1: Okay, so it's a pretty relatively cent. modern. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this survivor has been covered many times. She is a public speaker, she's been on TV, she's guested on podcasts, there are all kinds of newspaper and online articles about her. You very likely may have heard of her before. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you today about the survivor story of Patricia Winskunis. Patricia, you will find, is one of the most badass survivors we've talked about. She came from a traumatic background. She was abused as a child by an uncle at the age of eight. She was abused again by two people she thought were her friends at age 15. She was sexually assaulted on a date at age 20, all of which left compounding emotional scars Mm -hmm. you just one scar Mm -hmm. on top of another, on top of another. And like many abused individuals, she grew up to become involved with another abusive person. Her relationship with a violent man led to him beating her son Nathaniel with paint mixing sticks and seeing that she eventually escaped that man. Because she wasn't able to save herself but
0: mm-hmm. when she
1: saw her son was in danger, yeah. She got them out well, so that she could save her son.
0: I feel like you see that a lot with survivors of childhood trauma where it's like they accept that behavior towards them because it feels like home and comfortable.
1: For yeah, them. they don't believe they deserve any better.
0: But then they see that with somebody who's innocent and has never experienced this before and it's like, Absolutely not, you're not gonna do this so
1: they continue on. With that's the right. Generational trauma. It's, that's exactly right. So good for her. She eventually escaped that violent man, and she was living her life as a single mother, running her own catering business, and just loving her son with all of her might. Mm-hmm. So now she's about thirty-two years old. And again, these emotional traumas are often the nightmare fuel that causes women and sometimes men to wrestle with body issues and eating disorders. That's where that kind of stuff often starts. Mm -hmm. She had very low self-esteem and did not feel worthy as a woman or as a mother. She had struggled with eating disorders throughout her life, pretty much since she was a child and she was abused in those situations. Her doctor was giving her warnings that her health was in jeopardy if she couldn't get the eating disorders under control. Because they can be really hard on your body and they can cause death. Mm -hmm. Over time, they can just weaken your system and cause organ failure. So she was going to try and do what she could to stop the damage as much as possible. Mm -hmm. She wanted to be around for when her son grew up, when he graduated, when he got married. She wanted to get her health and emotions back on track so she could live a full and satisfying life and be there for her son. In an attempt to find someone that could help her to feel better about herself, and help her finally conquer her eating disorders, she sought help at a local gym. Patricia reached out to a gym called 24 Hour Fitness and confided what her issues were and what she was hoping to achieve. The manager there assessed her situation and connected her to the person that they thought was the perfect match for Patricia's needs. Okay. Jeffrey Calavos was a 27-year-old trainer with a wife and a two-year-old daughter. On the first day they met, he told her that he was a registered nurse He had a lot of experience treating people with body dysmorphia and eating disorders. He seemed like exactly what she needed. Mm -hmm. So they began working together at the gym. And I can't speak to exactly how Patricia and Jeff related to one another on a day-to-day basis. But even when the interaction doesn't involve these intensive things like eating disorders, the relationship between a personal trainer and their client is fairly intimate. Not in a sexual way, but the trainer is constantly assessing you, looking at you, Touching you, directing you, telling you what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, what you should try next. Encouraging and coaching, and in some ways they're getting into your head.
0: Well, it's kind of like intimate, like you said, not sexually, but in the same way your therapist would be intimate with
1: you. They know things about you you don't normally just put out on the surface. And in her case, I think that he was functioning partly as her therapist Mm -hmm. because she had to be so deeply intimate with what was in her past. Things that she wouldn't have told anybody else, like you just said. Mm -hmm. So these personal trainers have to understand what motivates you so they can get the best possible result out of your time together. Mm -hmm. Patricia had been working with Jeffrey for nine and a half months. She was finally feeling comfortable with him. She was trusting him. He was telling her what to eat, what to drink, when to exercise, what workouts to do. Jeffrey made it clear that she needed to trust him because he was the expert. I mean, he was a registered nurse. She was supposed to trust him. Yeah. Patricia was thinking of him as a friend, a little brother, because he was 27, she was 32. She thought he knew what she needed. They also worked out at the gym, never at her home. In fact, he told her it wasn't good for her to work out at home and that she should sell her treadmill. On April fourth, two 2002... Jeffrey wanted to come over to her home and look at the treadmill that he had convinced her that she should sell so that he could tell her how much it was worth because he's an expert on fitness equipment. Mm -hmm. So she let him into the house. Her son wasn't home. Knowing that Patricia still had body issues despite her general fitness, Jeffrey mentioned that he had a weight loss supplement that he wanted her to try. It was something new. He thought it was going to be great for her. He told her it would help her to lose eight pounds in the first week. He had brought it along with him. He laid a pill out on her counter. It wasn't uncommon for personal trainers to offer supplements to their clients, and because they had worked together for the better part of a year, Patricia accepted it. She had no reason not to trust him. She took the pill, along with a chocolatey drink that had a bluish froth to it. She hesitated for a second before taking this, but she hesitated for a second and then pushed down her reluctance and went ahead and took the pill and drank the shake.
0: To be fair, even if it's a supplement that's not FDA approved, he is a nurse. He probably read the directions on the back or the ingredients and also fitness people. My dad's a fitness guy. My brother's a fitness guy. Do you know how many weird, frothy, gross drinks they've made me try in my time? <laughs> <laughs> yes, That's
1: completely normal, I feel Exactly. Like, the situation. She had, she had a little bit of hesitation just because this wasn't their normal situation. Mm-hmm. They were normally at the gym. But she thought, I have no reason not to take his Ex- word for it. He's trying to help me is what she thought.
0: Yeah, she has no reason not to.
1: But very quickly afterward, she blacked out. She had 30 minutes of total blackout and she has no idea what happened to her during that time. When Patricia began to regain consciousness, she woke up two times. The first time, she was wrapped tightly in a blanket like a burrito and she couldn't move.
0: Oh, that's a nightmare fuel.
1: Jeffrey was there and told her she must have had a bad reaction to the supplement and that he needed to leave but he would come back later and check on her. She blacked out again. The second time she awoke, she could hardly breathe and realized she had plastic wrap and a towel wrapped around her face and her mouth. She could hear water running in the bathtub. She felt like she was under anesthesia. She tried to get up but realized that Jeffrey was sitting on her wearing underwear. She was naked. He screamed at her to stop fighting. Jeffrey viciously beat her. He headbutted her. He screamed at her that he was going to kill her And then he added that after he killed her, he was going to kill her son, Nathaniel, too. Hmm. This reminds me of a story we did a a month or two ago about a woman who came back from that. And that was the motivation she needed. Because her daughter was in the bathroom upstairs, right? That's right. I remember that. That's right. Nathaniel wasn't home. But eventually, the 12-year-old, who was out with his friends playing games at GameWorks, he was going to come back. And if Patricia had been killed by then... It would be easy for Jeffrey to victimize Nathaniel, too. Mm -hmm. And that was when Patricia found the strength to change her impossible circumstances. With this motivation, she found the strength to get the plastic wrap and the towel off of her face so she could breathe and start to fight her way off of the bed. He desperately continued punching her, hitting her, smashing her head into the wall. She was so exhausted, and she was still feeling the effects of the drug. And if she hadn't been so determined to protect her son, she said she didn't know if she would have had the strength to keep fighting. But she did keep fighting. She managed to get herself partway down the stairs because her bedroom was on the second floor. Mm -hmm. But because she was drugged and groggy and not moving very well, he caught her and he pushed her back up the stairs into the loft. Patricia knew that if she wasn't able to get out of the loft, he was going to kill her. There was no way she was going to prevent that unless she got away so she managed to drag herself to the railing of the loft and threw her leg over it she kept working at it until she could push her whole body over the railing fighting and fighting and fighting her fingernails left scratch marks down the wall as she fell 12 feet to the front room on the first floor below (sighs) patricia then got up ran still groggy now she's probably injured from this fall out the door naked running down the street yelling banging on every door until she finally reached a door that opened the neighbor took her in and they called 911 the neighbor left and actually went to game works where nathaniel was playing with friends wanted to make sure that because jeffrey knew where nathaniel was oh they wanted to make sure that nathaniel wasn't going to get snatched out of there by jeffrey and taken off to punish patricia for escaping
0: well that's smart because i thought that they were just gonna be like hey don't go
1: home Right. I mean, probably both. Wanted to be there with him to make sure he was safe. The police showed up, went to Patricia's house. The clothes that Patricia had been stripped out of while unconscious were just neatly folded in a pile. How nice of him to fold them after he violated her in every possible horrible Mm -hmm. way. After Patricia's escape, Jeffrey Kalavos fled the scene and went to his own home. He began frantically leaving voicemails on Patricia's line. And I heard the voicemails. I listened to them. There were two of them, and there's a total of about, I don't know, maybe ten minutes total of voicemails. If you've ever heard the recordings of the weepy voice killer, Oh, I've done it again. Please stop me. You remember that guy? Yeah. It sounded very much like that. Oh, what did I do? Someone's going to hurt my daughter. I just needed the money. I'm so sorry, Patricia. I'm so sorry. And then he's talking about how he only did it to help his daughter. He needs to save his daughter. Yada, yada, yada. Totally freaking out. Making up a story about somebody having his daughter. And that he needed money to get his daughter back. I don't know how any of this has to do with him getting money. Well, how was he going to get money out of killing Patricia? I it don't know.
0: sounds like maybe that's why he went over there to buy the treadmill or steal the treadmill. God knows what. But, dude... Nobody's going to believe that this was all a money thing. When you fucking stripped her naked, if you had drugged her so that she wouldn't be there while you stole whatever the fuck you went in the house to get. She was a caterer. It's not like she had piles of money sitting yeah, around her. Like you, there was no reason for her to be naked, for you to beat the shit out of her when she was already unconscious, if you were there for money reasons. Yeah. You would have been long gone when she woke up and were exactly. knocked dumb. And you were down to your underwear.
1: He said that he was sorry 113 times between the two voicemail messages that he left. But Patricia later reflected on this and she said he knew that she came from a background of abuse and victimization. Mm -hmm. He probably thought that if he apologized, if he appealed to that deep part of her that didn't believe that she deserved to be treated well, then maybe he could keep her from calling the police. But she did call the police. She had already called the police Mm -hmm. and Jeffrey was apprehended at his home. He was charged with deliberate premeditated attempted murder, burglary in the first degree, assault with a deadly weapon, meaning the saran wrap or the plastic wrap, Mm -hmm. and criminal threat when he threatened to kill Nathaniel. Patricia was naturally after this experience going through PTSD, anxiety, depression. And as this case came to trial, instead of getting better, all of that just got worse. The trial was another trauma on top of the original trauma. The judge was demeaning and abusive toward Patricia. She continuously berated her in court for one thing or another. She had no empathy for what Patricia had been through. There was a story that I didn't put into my notes, but Patricia had taken her mother's rosary mm-hmm. and a picture of her son because she was so traumatized and she's sitting in court holding the rosary and the photo of her son as just sort of a little bit of comfort in this horrible environment. And the judge stepped down from the bench, walked across the courtroom, took them out of her hands and put them on a table where she couldn't reach them, said she was making too much noise.
0: How unprofessional.
1: Yeah, that's just the beginning of that. It's
0: like judges, people get mad at the family of a victim who are crying too loudly in the audience. It's like, fuck off, like you unhuman
1: exactly. piece of
0: shit. Exactly. And there,
1: there's more. That's going to be followed up on, so hold that pin. Okay. A plea bargain was discussed and agreed upon where Calavos would be sentenced to two years and end up doing about one year of time. Patricia was sick to her stomach, thinking that after what he had done to her, he might only spend a year behind bars. On the day of the sentencing, 50 of Patricia's friends and supporters showed up at the courthouse carrying signs protesting that light sentence for such a monstrous crime. But Judge Suzanne Shaw, who had been hostile towards Patricia throughout the whole fiasco, resented the picketing outside and threw out the plea bargain, ordering a trial to take place. And it only got worse from there. So
0: she's... Choosing to re-traumatize her through making her come in for a trial now. Yeah, basically. Just because she had people supporting her, rightfully so.
1: Yes. <laughs> Ugh. The judge threw out, in addition to making her go through a trial, the judge threw out the charge of premeditated attempted murder. And, in fact, Kalavos was only charged with assault with a deadly weapon, the saran wrap or the plastic wrap. In the end, the jury found him guilty, and he could have been sentenced to up to 10 years in prison. hmm but after Jeffrey was convicted, Judge Suzanne Shaw declared Jeffrey Calavos was a well-dressed, well-mannered man that he had a wife and a toddler and another baby on the way so she sentenced Jeffrey Calavos to 120 days in jail. With time served, he was freed the same fucking day. She also required anger management classes and five years probation.
0: Does it ever come up why this judge had such a stick
1: up her ass about this? There's no way of knowing that, but like I said, we'll come back to the judge. Okay. Patricia was in shock. She went home, she got in bed, and hibernated for the next six months. Of course. She was just catatonic. She couldn't function knowing that basically she was punished for what he did to her. When she realized that her son Nathaniel was worried that she was just going to stay in bed forever, she found the strength to get out of her bed and contacted a therapist to get some help. Mm Mm-hmm. Patricia later filed with the state a citation against Judge Suzanne Shaw, who was later investigated and found to have a history of abusive and demeaning behavior toward various people in her courtroom. After the determination that there had been 42 separate instances of judicial misconduct over five cases that she presided over in a period of two years, that's only in two years, she was permanently barred from the bench in 2006. Ugh. And think. rightfully so, because that bitch, mm-hmm. who the hell did she think she was? She has no right being anywhere near a victim. Like, no. that is... Mm-hmm. No. She had no business being on the bench in the very first place. But I'm happy that that was ordered, that she could never serve as a judge again. After his 120 days in jail, which ended basically on the day of his sentencing... Jeffrey Calavos was released and moved to San Diego. And based on not finding anything to the contrary, it appears that he is just living free. Just living his best life. Is he still... Did his wife leave him? Or is he still... I doubt it. It's oh, rough. But because of what she went through and the fact that Jeffrey Calavos served 120 days, mm-hmm. I mean, four months, for what he did to her, she used this, Patricia used that as motivation to make a difference. In 2003, one year after her attempted murder, Patricia started an organization for crime survivor advocacy. She does not use the term victim. She is not a victim, she is a survivor. Mm -hmm. So she started crimesurvivors.org in 2003 to provide help and resources to other survivors. She said a lot of the advocacy groups are out there are doing good work, but they're focused more on helping people who have lost someone to crime. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to actually help the survivors directly. CrimeSurvivors.org was the 2017 California Nonprofit of the Year. So it is a legitimate website that is doing really important work. It provides direct help to survivors whether they need food, clothing, or shelter. Mm -hmm. And here are some of the things that they do. They provide resource guides with information for victims, survivors, and families. They give out these adult and child victim emergency bags, and these include crucial items that are needed by victims during the first 48 to 72 hours after experiencing trauma when they're still in complete shock Mm -hmm. and don't even know what hit them. Meal baskets for survivors and their families. Coordination of holiday gifts for survivors and their families. And some of the other things were education if the survivors need education grants or if they need employment assistance. Mm-hmm. There are so many things that this organization is doing. They provide guidance on how to begin to deal with any kind of trauma that's been experienced, including establishing safety, let's finding a safe place and asking for help if you need it. Mm -hmm. Caring for your injuries. Go to the hospital to treat your injuries and tell them that they're the result of a crime before you're treated so that the medical staff know how to document this so that it can be used as evidence. Mm -hmm. Call the police, but leave the crime scene intact so as not to destroy the evidence. Document the crime. While it may be the last thing that you want to do, write down exactly what happened to you Mm -hmm. as soon as possible following your incident. They have information on what to do if you're a crime victim. They also have information about victims' fundamental rights. This is an amazing website, and if you or your loved one is ever a crime victim, I would encourage you to go to https backslash backslash crimesurvivors.org. It is a secure website. It's not going to do bad things to your computer. And you can access some really important resources, or you can make a donation to help them continue doing this amazing work as victims' advocates. Mm Patricia also travels around, I know that she does it around California, she probably does it in other locations as well, to give presentations, and she speaks to law enforcement personnel to help them understand what crime victims and survivors experience after they've been through something so devastating. Mm -hmm. If you, as an officer, haven't ever experienced this, you may be treating them with a colder hand than they need to be treated with at that time. Mm -hmm. They're devastated, and she wants people to understand how to interact with them. And related to her public speaking, Patricia also has her own website, and that's just com and you can see in the episode title how to spell her name, which is the interface that she uses for her speaking, education, and public outreach. So if you're interested in contacting her for any of those purposes, please find her there. Mm-hmm. In the end, Patricia said this, I had red flags. I knew that it was weird. I wish I would have honored the things that I felt were not right. And I should have walked away, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. And you can't beat yourself up because you didn't walk away. Because she had every reason to think that this was safe. She had no reason to think he wasn't safe. But if she had trusted her gut Mm -hmm. and said, ah, I'm not feeling right. I don't want to take that right now.
0: See, the thing is, she says she should have known better. But realistically speaking, I don't think she could have known better because this guy was playing the long con with her he was
1: around her every day or every other day or whatever for nine something months nine and a half months and she said that based on their first interaction it's obvious it's clear everybody knows that sociopaths choose victims because they know they're going to be vulnerable mm-hmm. they know how to get into their head to get in deep with them she says she picked him because of his medical knowledge and because of his training ability. Mm-hmm. He picked her because of her vulnerabilities, and she thinks he chose her as his, as his next victim the day they met. He knew that day that he wanted to try and kill her and that he was going to do this to her. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he was playing the long con.
0: It's another one of those cases where these people go into the field where they're, it's going to be easier for them to find a victim because they're dealing with people who are insecure, who are... Yeah. Coming from a trauma past. That's so messed up. Why are people like this? But,
1: I mean, the chances are he's still doing it. I
0: mean, the yeah. chances
1: are he's still doing this for a living. He
0: basically got a slap on the wrist, if you can even call it that. I feel yeah. like I've had worse punishments a 120 days in jail. And I've done nothing even close to what he's done. It's I'm just, pretty
1: sure you've never been to jail.
0: I've never been to jail, but I've been grounded for longer than that. <laughs> Jesus
1: Christ. You're still grounded. I'm still grounded. So. It's just, that's. But she's she's a badass, and the good that she is doing in the world. Mm -hmm. She said that when she woke up the second time and the plastic was wrapped over her face and she couldn't breathe, she said she made a deal with her creator that Mm -hmm. if she got another breath, if she survived this, she would live the rest of her life for community rather than herself. Mm -hmm. And that's what she did. She made good on her words, so I can't say enough amazing things about her.
0: Little Nathaniel, he gets to grow up with such a strong mommy.
1: Yeah. But it was partly because of him noticing how broken she was. Mm -hmm. If he hadn't said that and she overheard it, who knows how long she would have stayed in that bed.
0: Yeah. I feel like these people really underestimate the power of bringing your child into something. (laughs) Because clearly, you see those moms that lift up minivans, you see these moms who break out of these. She jumped off of essentially a balcony, yeah, because he's brought up her son. Well, while fl- well,
1: under anesthesia, <laughs> like t- the floor to floor height was probably twelve feet. She also jumped over the railing, which is another three feet.
0: Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So the fact that she got up without a broken neck or a broken ankle or whatever and ran down the street naked to save herself and her son, I just and then all the good <laughs> she's doing in the world, I just can't say enough.
0: Yeah, that's that's incredible.
1: So that is the end of episode 52. We would love it if you would share our podcast with someone that you know who likes true crime. Mm -hmm. Or someone that you know who likes mothers and daughters. Or someone you know who likes annoying cats. Especially the cats, because that's a majority of our content. <laughs> and you can contact us in all the normal ways. We won't go through that again today. <laughs> you go, you know the drill. Yeah, it's you fine. You do know the drill. And we want to thank our new reviews. We got another new review today oh, on I Apple Podcasts. Okay. Thank you for joining us again today for episode 52. And we will be back next week for episode 53. Bye. Bye. That was kind of rough. <laughs> Bye. that she should sell she should sell she should sell her treadmill it sounds like she sells seashells by the she sea sells shore. treadmills down <laughs> by the shore but she pushed down her reluctance and along with what along with what what <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what that meant are you gonna yell
0: i'm gonna scream <laughs> I'm going to stand just far enough where you can't even grip my hair.
1: Come here. <laughs> so you were going to pull her over by her hair? I don't think that's going to be in the best interest of Well, eventually she'll be like, all She's right. Like, yeah, and somebody comes to the house and they're like, why does your cat have that bald spot?
0: <laughs> we don't talk about it. She's really insecure about that right now. <laughs>
1: All right, another sip of water, I think.
0: Do you want one of the treats that puts left on the floor over here?
1: Can I have some of the slobbery crumbs? This is the best one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're, like, pre-chewed for you.
1: <laughs> she made a deal with her creator that if she got another breath, if she survived this, she would live the rest of her life.
0: Well, that's a pretty good deal. <laughs> She'll just live, please. No. Well, either come here or go
1: away. She hunkered down. <laughs> How bad do you want this cuddle, mommy? How bad? I don't want to cuddle. I want you to shut up.